Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, June 22nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. A Pentagon accounting error leads to a $6.2 billion in Ukraine aid surplus. Rishi Sunak says Russia must pay for Ukraine's reconstruction. Biden calls Xi Jinping a dictator a day after high-level talks. Musk and Modi discuss major investments. The FTC sues Amazon over Prime subscriptions. 100 letters with white powder are sent to Kansas officials. A prison riot in Honduras kills at least 41. The search for the Titanic submersible reaches a crucial moment. A study claims one in five women conceive naturally after fertility treatment. And a former New Jersey cop is ensnared in a PRC harassment scheme. In our first story, a Pentagon overestimate leads to a $6.2 billion surplus for Ukraine arms. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, The Hill, and The Daily Mail. On Tuesday, the U.S. Department of Defense said it overestimated weapons shipments to the Ukraine by $6.2 billion over the past two years, approximately double the size of the last estimate, resulting in a surplus of available funds for future arms deliveries. A previously disclosed accounting showed the Pentagon overestimated the value of weapons sent to Ukraine by at least $3 billion because of inconsistencies in how weapons were valued. Officials often use the cost to replace a weapon rather than using its current valuation in accounting terms. Sending Ukraine used military gear, which is more efficient than waiting for new supplies, also contributed to the discrepancy. Pentagon spokesperson Sabrina Singh said the $6.2 billion figure is a combination of an error of $3.6 billion this fiscal year and a $2.6 billion error from the previous fiscal year. Based on previous estimates, the Pentagon had spent more than $40 billion in military aid for Ukraine, but now it says it has provided less than $34 billion in aid. Thank you, Melissa, for the facts on that first story. I'm going to start off our first round of narrative spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Washington Post. The Pentagon's discovery of this miscalculation comes at just the right time, as Ukraine is ramping up its counteroffensive, and the money appropriated by Congress was reportedly running low. Luckily, the U.S. hadn't been rationing its support before discovering the valuation errors, and now the U.S. can continue to provide its full-throated support to Ukraine. Here's the establishment critical narrative from the Daily Wire. The timing of this discovery is a little too perfect, as Republicans and the American public are growing more skeptical about spending billions to help Ukraine while there are so many issues to address at home. If this is a way for the Biden administration to get around Congress to support an unpopular war, the executive branch should be held to account. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They've got an opinion on this story that says there's a 17% chance that there will be a U.S.-Russia war before 2050. I do wish that there were suddenly an extra couple billion dollars in my uh, fiscal uh, bank account for the year. I wish that our personal lives finances worked like that. Like we could at the beginning of the year or at the end of the previous year go, you know what? Next year, I think I'm going to spend, oh, about $500,000. And then by the end of the year, oh, I only spent $150,000. That means next year I get more money. 
right? Isn't that the way it works? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think so. that would be the way in this scenario, which which I'm loving, Adam, because then you could say like, you know, the you know, the, um, you know, $100,000 I spent on groceries last year like that. I think they were only worth about 75 because some of them were, you know, kind of misshapen vegetables and expired milk. Oh, yeah. yeah. We should be able to go to stores and just like uh, when we take it up, we go, I don't think that value is incorrect on this. I think yeah. we need to devalue this price on this so I can get a better deal. Yeah, more haggling. More haggling. Haggling. That's what we're missing at the grocery stores, <laughs> haggling. Yeah, yeah. Oh, more my haggling. Gosh. That's what we want. As if the checkers at the grocery <laughs> store weren't in a bad enough new mood as oh, it was yeah. already. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. At the Ukraine Recovery Conference, Rishi Sunak says that Russia must pay. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine Forum, South China Morning Post, Metro, Associated Press, and Guardian. Hosting the second Ukraine Recovery Conference in London on Wednesday, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said that Russia, quote, must pay for the damage inflicted in Ukraine, stating that his government is working with allies to explore means of using frozen Russian assets for Ukraine's reconstruction. It's clear Russia must pay for the destruction that they've inflicted, Sunak said. So we're working with allies to explore lawful routes to use Russian assets, and on Monday, we publish new legislation to allow us to keep sanctions in place until Russia pays up. The move follows suit with the U.S., which implemented similar measures earlier in the year. In February, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, while his Ukrainian counterpart visited Washington, announced that the U.S. Department of Justice had for the first time authorized the U.S. to use funds seized from Russia for Ukraine aid. Garland said that $5.4 million of assets confiscated from Konstantin Malafeyev would be used. In Wednesday's address, the British Prime Minister also announced that the UK has pledged to loan Ukraine over £2.3 billion, or $2.9 billion, to help rebuild the country. He further announced a $3 billion loan guarantee program with the World Bank, pledging to underwrite the risk of wartime investment into Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed the conference via video link on Wednesday. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen addressed the two-day conference in person, attending the event alongside politicians, diplomats, and business people from more than 60 countries. BT, Virgin, Philips, and Hyundai Engineering are among the firms already committed to investment in Ukraine. In his address to the conference, Blinken said the U.S. was providing a further $1.3 billion in additional aid to Ukraine, including $520 million to overhaul its energy grid, while $675 million have been earmarked for new infrastructure. Like Sunak before him, Blinken also insisted, quote, that Russia will eventually bear the cost of Ukraine's reconstruction. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. And we've got a few narrative spins on the matter. We'll start with a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine not only tramples across the U.N. charter, but across Western ideals of freedom and democracy. That has made the West more united than ever. But support for the mammoth job of rebuilding Ukraine is still needed. Western firms and companies will support Ukraine for now, but Russia must ultimately pay for the damage it has inflicted. And TASS has a pro-Russia narrative to follow that up. 
the so-called sanctioning of Russian assets as nothing more than state-sponsored theft. In pursuing this strategy, the West shows it's ready to trample on its own principles of the presumption of innocence or the inviolability of private property, all to continue its pursuit of hegemonic aims. However, Russia has plenty of other reliable partners across the world. And we've got another nerd narrative from the folks at Metaculus, this time saying there's a 1% chance that Russia will be removed from the UN Security Council by 2024. So this kind of follows suit with the old moniker, you break it, you buy it type thing. <laughs> yeah. Only thing is they, they, they don't get to own it after they right. pay for it. Yeah. You break it, you reconstruct it, and then put it back on the shelf, please. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can make it look pretty. Biden labels Chinese President Xi a dictator. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CBS, Reuters, The New York Post, The Hindu, and The Independent. U.S. President Joe Biden on Tuesday likened his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping to a dictator. One day after Secretary of State Antony Blinken met Xi on a trip to China, meant to ease bilateral tensions. Speaking about a suspected Chinese spy balloon shot down by the U.S. earlier this year, Biden claimed at a private fundraiser in Northern California that Xi was upset because he was unaware that the balloon had gone off course. Being caught off guard by such events is a great embarrassment for dictators, Biden continued, referring to Xi, who recently secured an unprecedented third term as China's president and head of the Communist Party. The suspected Chinese spy balloon entered U.S. airspace in February and passed over sensitive U.S. military installations before being shot down off the coast of South Carolina, escalating U.S.-China tensions. By calling his Chinese counterpart a dictator, Biden committed a blatant political provocation, the Chinese foreign ministry said on Wednesday, criticizing Biden's remarks as extremely absurd and irresponsible. Biden's remarks came after Blinken wrapped up his visit to China on Monday, saying the spy balloon chapter should be closed and agreed with President Xi to stabilize strained U.S.-China ties. Blinken's trip was the first by a U.S. Secretary of State to China since 2018. Thank you, Melissa. We're going to start off with an establishment critical narrative provided by Live Mint. Biden calling Xi a dictator a day after Blinken's visit to China is a serious attack on China's dignity and shows yet again that Biden is at odds with the truth and the diplomatic protocol. As a result, his remarks are likely to imperil recent efforts to stabilize U.S.-China relations. The fact that Washington twisted the facts and inflated the spy balloon incident is consistent with Washington's bullying and hypocrisy towards China. And here's the pro-establishment narrative from Bloomberg. Biden's choice of words is unlikely to significantly jeopardize recent diplomatic progress. Blinken's visit underscored Washington's desire to improve relations with China, and Biden also expressed hope of meeting with Xi himself in the coming months. Beijing has a vested interest in reducing tensions with Washington for geopolitical and economic reasons and should work with the U.S. to continue the difficult journey of understanding. And the New York Post has a narrative C on the story as well. Biden called Xi a dictator, but at the same time defended him by echoing the Chinese narrative that the spy balloon was merely off course when it flew over some of the most sensitive U.S. military installations. In reality, it was the Biden administration, not Xi, that was unaware of what was going on when the spy attack occurred, thereby jeopardizing U.S. national security. 
And we have another nerd narrative, this time saying there's a 15% chance for war between the U.S. and China before 2035. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Musk meets with Modi to discuss an India investment. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Bloomberg, BBC News, and CNBC. On Tuesday, Tesla CEO Elon Musk met with Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi as part of Modi's visit to the U.S. The two reportedly discussed expanding Tesla's investment in India, with Musk telling reporters afterwards that Tesla will enter the Indian market, quote, as soon as humanly possible. Last month, Tesla and India restarted discussions to expand into Indian market after earlier negotiations stalled. Modi and Musk are also believed to have discussed sustainable power generation in India, as well as the potential expansion of Starlink internet service in the country. Reuters reported that Tesla's plan to export cars to the Indian market to gauge interest was rejected by India, which wished to see the cars produced locally. After the meeting, Musk said it was, quote, quite likely investment in India would expand. After the meeting, Musk called himself a, quote, fan of Modi, adding that he is, quote, incredibly excited about the future of India. Modi extended an invitation to Musk to visit, which could happen as soon as next year. Musk has been actively scouting locations for a new Tesla factory around the globe, with South Korea as a top candidate. A preliminary deal to open a factory in Indonesia would see the nation produce one million cars a year. Modi also met with other high-level business and tech leaders, and a state dinner on Thursday is set for him to meet with the CEOs of Google, Apple, and Microsoft. Modi and Musk last met in 2015 when the former visited a Tesla factory in California. Thank you, Adam, and we'll begin with a right narrative from East Mojo. India's emergence as an economic superpower is now impossible to ignore, as Modi has met with titans of the industry during his visit to America. To have the endorsement of one of the world's most successful men bodes well for India's prospects under the Modi government. Luminaries from finance to science have been lining up to gain insight from the prime minister and explore opportunities for investment and collaboration, showing that the best of India's development is yet to come. And BBC has a left narrative. It is curious that the current owner of Twitter and free speech advocate would cozy up to the man who threatened to shut down the site if they didn't comply with government demands. This is one of many human rights concerns under Modi's rule, and Musk should not be effusively praising a leader with such a checkered past. Elon Musk appears to be abandoning his principles in the pursuit of profit and should not engage with Modi in such an uncritical manner. The nerds at Metaculus are at it again, this time saying there's a 50% chance that India will be designated a high-income country by the World Bank by December 1st, 2048. I just wanted to be the person that introduced the two of them. Modi, Musk, Musk, Modi. Just for the alliteration alone. Just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The FTC sues Amazon over Prime subscriptions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Fox News, Reuters, NPR Online News, NBC, and CNN. The Federal Trade Commission sued Amazon in a U.S. district court in Washington Wednesday for allegedly using deceptive tactics to get millions of users to sign up for its Prime program and sabotaging attempts to cancel the subscriptions. The FTC claims Amazon violated the FTC Act and the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act by using so-called dark patterns 
that intentionally manipulated users into enrolling in and automatically renewing Prime subscriptions with coercive or deceptive user interface designs. The commission says that Amazon described its practices, which began in 2016, using the term Iliad Flow, comparing the complicated process of canceling a Prime subscription to Homer's epic about the Trojan War. In a statement, FTC chair Lena Khan alleged Amazon tricked and trapped people into recurring subscriptions without their consent to protect its bottom line, noting that the $139 yearly Prime subscription generates $25 billion in annual revenue for the tech giant. The FTC's investigation has been ongoing since 2021, with the dispute escalating when the agency asked CEO Andy Jassy and founder Jeff Bezos to testify on the company's prime practices, to which Amazon appealed and the FTC rejected. After paying $30 million last month to settle two FTC privacy complaints, Wednesday's filing marked Amazon's first major lawsuit brought by Khan. Meanwhile, Amazon says the allegations are false on the facts and the law, claiming it didn't receive advance notice of the suit. But it doesn't say they didn't do it. Right. Like, you guys didn't tell us fast enough. If you had Amazon Law Prime, you might have gotten it right away. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. The Guardian has a narrative A spin. Amazon has been using deceptive and illegal tactics to dupe millions of subscribers into unknowingly enrolling in Amazon Prime while creating a self-described Iliad process to prevent users from leaving the program. This predatory behavior has cost consumers millions of dollars and has been intentionally preserved to keep cash flows up for the tech behemoth. Amazon must stop these manipulative tactics and pay for its transgressions. Narrative B provided by Fortune. Since 2021, FTC Chair Lena Khan has unfairly targeted Amazon and its executives in an egregiously handled probe that shows a clear personal vendetta she has against CEO Andrew Jassy and Jeff Bezos. Khan has publicly shown her bias against Amazon since her 2017 article berating the company, and she is now abusing her power to target Amazon and its key figures. In a report out of Kansas, 100 letters with white powder were sent to officials. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, U.S. News & World Report, and ABC News. U.S. state and federal agencies have launched an investigation after more than 100 state legislators and public officials in Kansas received letters containing suspicious white powder. The letters were sent to legislators at their homes and the Kansas Bureau of Investigations and the Federal Bureau of Investigations are investigating the case. No injuries have been reported, and the preliminary test of the substance were negative for typical hazardous toxins. Further and more complete testings will be conducted on this sample, as well as on additional letters that have been collected in an effort to determine the components of the substance, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation said. State House Speaker Daniel Hawkins, a Republican, and Representative Stephen Owens, also a Republican, confirmed that they have received letters with the unknown substance. They believe the others who received them were also Republicans. Federal law enforcement officials said that the list of intended recipients of white powder letters had expanded beyond the state of Kansas. Letters with notes and a white powder substance were addressed to figures including former President Trump and Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. According to Republican State Senator Molly Baumgarten, who received one of the letters, the message was intended to be threatening. It read, in part, quote, it is important not to choke on your ambition. 
The sender described the letter as a gift and referred to themselves as your secret despirer, a word derived from despise. Those were the facts on that story, and we'll begin the narrative spins with Narrative A from WIBW 13, Kansas. The case continues to develop as officials search for those behind this dangerous act. Kansas officials have taken the threat in the letter filled with white powder seriously and are urging citizens to remain vigilant as they open their mail. The state legislature will not be intimidated by extremists who look to undermine the will of the people. There's also a narrative B provided by Slate. Federal officials in hazmat suits are once again appearing in news reports. Twenty-odd years after the forgotten panic over the anthrax attacks following 9-11, when deadly poison was sent to famous politicians and journalists, a suspicious incident with white powder has happened again. The Kansas letters are a stark reminder of how vulnerable modern society is to bioterror threats. All right, I think I figured out what happened, Adam. What's that? What's that? Everybody's working from home now, right? So you're multitasking. So this person, because it was non-toxic, right? They found that it wasn't hazardous. Uh-huh. The person was baking bread while they were doing their spam mailings, right? To get their business started. Oh, that's and it. And they just got some flour in there. Yeah. And Despire, is that just, uh, that's uh, that's that's his marketing scheme? Maybe he accidentally sent a, a, a piece of his, like a page from his diary instead. It was just a big mix-up. Dear Despire, <laughs> <laughs> today I baked a cake. Oops, I spilt the flour. Choke on your ambition. Oh, maybe he's selling an energy drink. Maybe he's. It, this is like a new um, meal service oh, that he's yeah. trying to start. It's a Despirer cake. <laughs> <laughs> a Honduras prison riot leaves at least 41 dead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, CNN, BBC News, The Independent, Reuters, and Guardian. On Tuesday, a deadly riot at a women's prison in Tamara, about 30 miles northwest of Honduras' capital, Tegucigalpa, left at least 41 women dead and seven more injured. The fight is believed to have broken out between the rival Barrio 18 and Mara Salvatrucha of MS-13 gangs at the Centro Femenino de Adaptación Social Women's Prison. It's reported that one gang involved in the clash set a cell alight. While some victims were shot or stabbed, most were reportedly burned to death. President Xiomara Castro vowed rigorous measures in the aftermath of the riot, which she claimed was planned by street gangs with the knowledge and acquiescence of security authorities. Her first move was to replace Security Minister Ramon Antonio Sabillon with National Police Head Gustavo Sanchez. The riot follows recent government measures, including raiding prisons to reduce gang violence, extortion, and corruption in the country. Tuesday's riot is one of the worst tragedies at a female detention center in Honduras after 361 inmates, most of whom had never been convicted or even charged with a crime, died in a fire at Comayagua Penitentiary in 2012. Thank you, Melissa. We have a Narrative A spin provided by Telesure English. The Honduran government has mobilized all its resources to restore control of the prison, demonstrating it will not tolerate terrorist actions carried out by organized crime in the penitentiary facilities. With a probe of the crime scene almost complete, justice for the victims is undoubtedly underway. And here's Narrative B from Insight Crime. Violence has long spiraled out of control in Honduras's prisons, which have become a potent breeding ground for organized crime groups that can continue their criminal activities and exert control through violence without interference from officials. 
This tragedy is another example of the Honduran penitentiary authorities' lack of control over the country's prisons. New updates on the Titanic subsearch, banging sounds are heard, and one day of oxygen is left. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, New York Post, CNN, Fox News, and NPR Online News. As of Wednesday, the submersible carrying tourists to visit the remains of the Titanic is estimated to have 20 hours of breathable air left, with search aircraft recording inconclusive banging on Tuesday and Wednesday that's thought to potentially be originating from the sub. In what's being described as a last-chance effort to save the passengers on board, three U.S. Air Force C-17 Globemasters delivered supplies and tools to Newfoundland, Canada, where a supply ship then set off on a 400-mile voyage to the location where the expedition's sub went missing. The Canadian Coast Guard ship, the John Cabot, equipped with advanced deep sonar, is on site now, according to Minister of Fisheries and Oceans Joyce Murray. The U.S. Coast Guard said the ships have side-scan sonar, used for detecting and imaging objects on the seafloor. According to undersea robotics expert Dr. Brendan Inglot, such a rescue would be unprecedented, as successful missions are typically achieved at depths between 2,000 and 5,000 feet below sea level. This submersible, however, is 13,000 feet deep. The Titan went missing Sunday somewhere within an area larger than Connecticut and possibly as far down as 2.4 miles. The sub is owned by Washington-based company OceanGate, which in May developed the first-ever digital scan of the Titanic wreckage and charges $250,000 per person. On board the ship is British businessman Hamish Harding, Pakistani energy and tech mogul Shinsada Dawood, and his 19-year-old son Suleiman, French diver and Titanic expert Paul-Henri Nargiolet, and OceanGate founder and CEO Stockton Rush. They're said to be at risk of hypothermia, lack of oxygen, and an excess of carbon dioxide. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. And we'll begin this round of spins with Narrative A from BBC. Despite the Titan sub's state-of-the-art navigation system, equipped with acoustic sensors to detect vehicle depth and speed, ocean gate voyages like these have always been dark, unpredictable, and dangerous for the passengers who decide to sign up. The waters this submersible got lost in are the same that swallowed thousands of lives on the Titanic. While each and every person who signs up knows these risks, the world is holding its breath for a successful rescue mission. And Forbes also has an opinion with their narrative B. While there may be inherent risks to deep water exploration, and everyone is rightfully rooting for a successful rescue mission right now, once this ends, there needs to be a thorough investigation into allegations that OceanGate ignored safety flaws in its submersibles. A former employee claims that company leadership knew about and ignored flaws in the quality control and safety measures of the very Titan sub used for this research trip. This employee said that he was met with hostility and even denied access to information regarding the flaws, information that must be investigated. And here's a cynical narrative from CNN. As is the case for space tourism and 24-day private global jet tours, Deep-sea exploration like this is simply an adventurous game for the ultra-wealthy to play in their free time. While it's extremely regulated, the potential dangers of the commercial sub-industry haven't changed much since it became accessible 35 years ago. Nothing can be said other than that, 
As the number of people worth more than $30 million grows, their abnormal hunger for extreme adrenaline rushes will only grow with it. And we're going to wrap the story up with a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance that the submersible's Titan will be located at least 1.777 nautical miles from the Titanic's bow. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Uh, they shouldn't have named it the Titan. You know what I mean? They're, they're asking for Just it. Just two letters away from Titanic. I, I hope everybody comes back safe. Yeah, I do too. In a new study, one in five women conceive naturally after using fertility treatment. And here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, The Evening Standard, She the People, and BBC News. According to a study by researchers at University College London, published in the journal Human Reproduction, one in five women who sought assisted conception for their first child were able to become pregnant naturally within three years. Analysis of 11 studies of over 5,000 women around the world between 1980 and 2021 showed that despite rates of conception after fertility treatment, the vast majority of the study participants had subfertility, where conceiving takes longer than typically expected. As one in seven heterosexual couples is now affected by infertility, the failure to conceive after 12 months of regular unprotected intercourse the researchers wanted to show that natural pregnancy after procedures such as IVF isn't as rare as previously thought. IVF was first introduced in 1978, and more than 10 million babies have now been born through the process, between 1% and 6% of births per year in the developed world in 2020. The study is good news, said Dr. Marta Jansa-Perez, a clinical embryologist associated with the British Fertility Society. But she warned that those affected by age or male infertility shouldn't delay seeking treatment for subsequent pregnancies because of the development. Interviewed for the study, Shima Turek, who went through IVF and subsequently conceived naturally, called her second child a wonderful surprise, but said she'd have used contraception if she'd been aware of her heightened chances of pregnancy. Thank you, Melissa. We have a Narrative A spin on this story provided by Oxford Academic. While this news doesn't mean that everyone struggling with fertility issues should abruptly go out and start IVF, it does show that the evidence such procedures do not lessen a woman's chances of natural pregnancy was there all along. In light of this study, scientists and doctors should push harder to provide cheaper access to IVF. And Narrative B is provided by Natural Womanhood. While this is positive news, it risks detracting from the fact that the medical field seems to have given up on the underlying causes of infertility, as well as the overall health impacts of infertility and assisted reproductive technology. Health issues such as polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS, and endometriosis affect both fertility and quality of life, yet the medical establishment has neglected them. For the sake of improving women's lives, we should not only be looking to solve infertility, but to better understand and treat the complexities relating to female fertility. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They think there's a 64% chance that any country will have a total fertility rate below 0.5 before 2053. And in our final story today, a former New Jersey cop is ensnared in a PRC harassment scheme. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, New York Post, New York Times, Forbes, Associated Press, and Global Times. 
Former New York City Police Sergeant Michael McMahon and two Chinese citizens living in the U.S., Zhang Kongying and Zhu Yong, were convicted on Tuesday of several charges concerning Beijing's notorious Operation Fox Hunt. A Brooklyn federal judge found Michael guilty of illegally acting as an agent of a foreign government, stalking, and conspiracy to engage in interstate stalking. He could face up to 20 years in prison at his sentencing. Shang was convicted of charges of stalking and a related conspiracy charge, while Zhu was found guilty of stalking, acting as an unregistered foreign agent, and two conspiracy charges. They could face up to 10 and 25 years in jail, respectively. The three defendants are accused of harassing New Jersey resident Zhu Jin and his life Liu Fang in the late 2010s on behalf of the PRC, where Zhu was charged with corruption and embezzlement. This was the first U.S. trial since the U.S. Justice Department began its crackdown on China's extrajudicial repatriation program, known as Operation Fox Hunt, that Beijing claims were launched to hunt fugitives, including corrupt officials and wealthy citizens. Since it started in 2014, Operation Fox Hunt has led to the arrest of 42 suspects, including 14 allegedly involved in contract fraud and illegal business operations, and the recovery of illicit gains of 140 million yen, or 20.65 million U.S. dollars. Those were the facts, and here are the spins on our final story today with the anti-China narrative from ProPublica. These convictions indicate a long-due change in the U.S. approach to response to the unwise position of the PRC. While the details of Operation Fox Hunt are not exactly a surprise due to the authoritarian nature of the Chinese government, the program exposes Beijing's utter disregard for the sovereignty of other countries when it comes to persecuting Chinese citizens. And Global Times is going to follow that up with a pro-China narrative. China's fox hunt operation, which targets corrupt suspects who flee the country to avoid being brought to justice, relies exclusively on law enforcement cooperation with other countries to track down fugitives. Despite the U.S. slandering the PRC's efforts, the U.S. has become a haven for criminals by failing to fulfill its international obligations and commitments. And the nerds have the final word today from the Metaculous community saying there's a 50% chance that China will score at least 5.72 on the Human Freedom Index in 2030. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, June 22, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.